Chapter Five of Phillips Brooks by Mark Antony de Wolf Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. These words of Principal Tullock's have to do with Phillips Brooks solely as a preacher. Still regarding him entirely in this light, it may be said that the year 1877 stood out with a special prominence in his career. Not only was it marked by the completion of the new Trinity Church, but in a way perhaps even more intimate and significant, by the delivery of his lectures on preaching at the Divinity School of Yale College. The volume containing these lectures tells us far more about Phillips Brooks himself than the most speaking volume of his sermons. It is, in effect, the Apologia pro sua vita. In it he explains himself by setting forth, at once minutely and broadly, his ideals for preaching and preachers. As a book, of course, it is intended for clerical readers, but it is written with such a delightful blending of wisdom with the quiet humor which eminently belonged to its author, and contains so plentiful a measure of truth and sincerity, that it is a book for no one class. The clergy, one may well imagine, might prefer to have the laity leave it alone, for it sets standards of clerical purpose and achievement which, to say the least, are not commonly attained. In forming any true estimate of Phillips Brooks, the lectures on preaching must inevitably be taken into account. With the two lectures on tolerance, delivered ten years later to the students of several of the Episcopal theological schools in the country, it provides the best possible background for considering Phillips Brooks in his pulpit. To write about him at all, without making some special scrutiny of his individual qualities as a preacher, would be to shirk an obvious duty. At the very beginning of his lectures to the Yale students, Mr. Brooks insisted that real preaching was the expression of truth through personality. Of these two elements, every true sermon must be compounded. The excess or the defect of either quality at the expense of the other causes the sermon to be less truly a sermon than it should and might be. If this, then, is preaching, what is to be said of the preaching of Phillips Brooks in the light of his own definition. In the first place, what was the truth as he saw it? It was eminently a simple thing. It lay for him within the formula of the church, but did not press itself violently against the boundaries of all these formulae. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man has become a cant phrase, but perhaps there is no other which sums up more succinctly the tenets of the Christian faith which Phillips Brooks most delighted to emphasize. The shortcoming of the phrase is that it does not bind together the brotherhood and the fatherhood to which it refers by the strong link of sonship through Jesus Christ. It was in the workings of this relationship that the preacher's faith in both God and man was strongest. Because he left the complexities of belief to others, he could hold the most positive convictions himself, and could advise the beginners in the ministry, preach positively what you believe, never preach what you do not believe, or deny what you do believe. 
doctrine and dogma have come to be regarded as words of danger and rigidity the advice of phillips brooks was preach doctrine preach all the doctrine that you know and learn forevermore and more but preach it always not that men may believe but that men may be saved by believing it the subjects of sermons were in his opinion to be mostly eternal truths and let the timeliness come in the illustration of those truths by and their application to the events of current life thus indeed it was the simplest truth of the gospel which he felt himself called to proclaim not a bundle of separate messages for separate classes of men the very same sermon could serve its purpose for him at wellesley college and at the concord states prison a boston minister invited to address about eight hundred physicians at a dinner of the massachusetts medical association has told of his remarking to mr brooks i don't know what under the sun to say and of receiving the characteristic response it doesn't make much difference what you say so you do not say what they expect preach the gospel this was what he himself always stood ready to do and the most and the least critical were equally ready to hear him at one time during an early moody and sankey revival in boston mr moody was ill and mr brooks was called to preach in his place the great tabernacle put up for the services was thronged and as the people poured out of it one man typical of the thousands who were present was heard to say why here we have a preacher of our own just as good as moody mr brooks indeed was often at his best even according to the standards of the fastidious before such miscellaneous gatherings of the unchurched as he found at the sunday evening services at fanui hall the globe theatre and the grand opera house once when he was asked in england what sermon he was going to preach on a certain sunday his natural response was oh i have only one sermon and truly through everything he said and wrote one message one simple interpretation of spiritual truth as he saw it to men as he knew them might have been traced the appeal of his message was not only to the mind not only to the heart but in these perfectly chosen words of his own to that spiritual reason which is no special function of the nature but is the best action of the whole nature working together the affection and the will being partners of the brain this definition of the receptive faculties of his hearers shows something of his understanding of their natures his knowledge of men was probably even exceeded by his faith in them to appreciate fully the qualities of his preaching and of his feeling about preaching in general it is necessary to give quite as much thought to his belief in men as to his faith in god when he found that his complete trust in any individual had been misplaced we are told that his sense of personal grief and loss was almost as great as if a part of his belief in the deity had been taken away from him his own words from the lecture on the ministry for our age define the constant attitude of his mind and spirit 
toward his fellow men, and unconsciously define himself. There is in every man's heart, if you could only trust it, a power of appreciating genuine spiritual truth, of being moved into unselfish gratitude by the love of God. Continually he who trusts it finds it there. A hundred men stand like the Spanish magnets on the shore and say, You must not venture far away, there is no land beyond, stay here and develop what we have. One brave and truthful man, like Columbus, believes that the complete world is complete, and sails for a fair land beyond the sea and finds it. The minister who succeeds is the minister who, in the midst of a sordid age, trusts the heart of man who is the child of God and knows that it is not all sordid and boldly speaks to it of God his Father as if he expected it to answer. And it does answer, and other preachers who have not believed in man and have talked to him in low plains and preached to him half-gospels which they think were all that he could stand, look on and wonder at their brother preacher's unaccountable success. A score of other passages from the lectures on preaching might advantageously be taken to illustrate points of positive biographical interest. To the sermons themselves, less than to these lectures on sermons, may we look for the motives which underlay the preaching, that is to say, the life, of Phillips Brooks. The sermons were the separate expressions of the genuine principles which, as occasion required, he set forth in lectures for the guidance of his younger brothers in the ministry. The lectures on tolerance contain one passage so characteristic of Phillips Brooks in his estimate of the truth to be blended with his personality into sermons that the reader will surely prefer it to any recasting of its definition of a man's relation to his fellow men. Every true churchman, that is, every man who truly values his place in the Christian church, it seems to me must think of himself as standing in the midst of four concentric circles. He is the center of them all. They represent the different groups of his fellow men with whom he has to do. They sweep in widening circumference around the spot of earth on which he stands, and make the different horizons of his life. What are they? Outermost of all there is the broad circle of humanity. All men, simply as men, are something to this man. It is the consciousness homo sum, the consciousness which the Latin poet crowded into his immortal line which fills this circle with vitality. Next within this lies the circle of religion, smaller than the other, because all men are not religious but large enough to include all those of every name, of every creed, who count their life the subject and the care of a divine life which is their king. Next within this lies the circle of Christianity, including all those who, under any conception of him and of their duty toward him, honestly own for their master Jesus Christ. And then, inmost of all, there is the circle of the man's own peculiar church, 
the group of those whose thought and worship is in general identical with his who stands in the center and feels all these four circles surrounding him intensely feeling the reality of his relation to the men within all four of these circles the preacher could confidently declare i cannot live truly with the men of my own church unless i also have a consciousness of common life with all christian believers with all religious men with all mankind who shall say that the true secret of his power lay anywhere but in the universal sympathy out of which these words are spoken through this very belief of his in all mankind he could preach with the greater zeal his other belief not man with religion is something more but man without religion is something less than man it will be clear to every reader with a regard for the things to which the life of phillips brooks was devoted that his view of these things was entirely inspiring and uplifting no wonder it may well be said that beliefs so human and magnanimous found their utterance in words so capable of stirring the heart of man it was indeed as he told the theological students at new haven let a man be a true preacher really uttering the truth through his own personality and it is strange how men will gather to listen to him we hear that the day of the pulpit is past and then some morning the voice of a true preacher is heard in the land and all the streets are full of men crowding to hear him just exactly as were the streets of constantinople when chrysostom was going to preach at the church of the apostles or the streets of london when latimer was bravely telling his truth at st paul's now that the words which men thronged to hear from the lips of phillips brooks can reach us only through the medium of print it is easier to appreciate the wisdom which he displayed in giving to personality an importance equal to that of truth as a quality of the sermon on many sides the complaint is heard that the sermons of phillips brooks are disappointing reading and so in a measure they certainly are especially for one who never saw him in the pulpit and is consequently unable to bring the visualizing memory to bear upon the printed page must the need of the personality make itself felt now and then said mr brooks himself you do find a volume of sermons which as it were keep their author in them so that as you read them you feel him present in the room but ordinarily reading sermons is like listening to an echo the echo in the world of nature loses half its interest if the voice to which it responds is unheard or unknown in like manner for those who have known phillips brooks by no means the least interest and value of the printed sermons lie in their service as a sort of magic glass through which the reader can look and see and hear the preacher at the height of his living power can feel him present in the room as other readers cannot 
I am the more inclined to believe this is true, and to be sorry for those who in reading the sermons are unable to associate the personality with the truth, because of my own experience in finding the far greater satisfaction in sermons which I first heard from the preacher's own lips. Other sermons may be intrinsically better, but in these the human voice may be most clearly heard, the human presence most definitely realized. And because this is true, one is willing to admit at once that the sermons, for all their revelations of spiritual insight and an excellently ordered mind, may not be important contributions to theology or really extraordinary as feats of the intellect. The affection and the will being partners of the brain, one may nevertheless find in them, whether the preacher's figure rises up behind the page or not, many things which must appeal with potency to the spiritual reason. A purely practical suggestion to him who would come nearest to getting their original effect is that they should be read with all possible rapidity. They were written to be spoken so, and reading them in the same way, bearing the while with certain repetitions and elaborations which belong more truly to words for the ear than to words for the eye, any one may gain a certain conception of their original effect. At best, however, this conception must be inadequate. The actual personality of the preacher was essential to the full force of what he had to say. Let us try to see through what medium the truth as he saw it was delivered to men. In the great round pulpit of Trinity Church, inviting its occupant to look out in every direction except behind him, the figure of Phillips Brooks comes most familiarly to mind. Six feet four inches in height, symmetrically massive of figure, clad in the black Geneva gown of which the shadow happily grows less each year in the pulpits of the Episcopal Church, he moves with swift dignity to his place. The text is announced in a quiet voice, sometimes too low to reach all corners of the great structure, and the sermon begins on the same gentle pitch. Woe to him whose ears are not quick to hear, for though the volume of voice increases as the sermon proceeds, the speed of delivery begins at a maximum in keeping with his habit of plunging into the very midst of his subject, and taxes the unaccustomed listener to the utmost. The average speaker gives forth about a hundred and twenty words to the minute. From a hundred and ninety to two hundred and fifteen are said to have poured from the lips of Phillips Brooks in the same space of time. But the gradual raising of the voice, together with a remarkable clearness of enunciation, diminishes the difficulty of keeping pace with the speaker's extraordinary speed. The voice itself may perhaps best be described as carrying with it rather too much breath to satisfy the most fastidious, yet so full of sympathy, tenderness, pleading, and conviction as to make one quite impatient of the elocutionary standards which would condemn it. 
the gestures are as nothing a raising of the hand and pressing it to the side a toss of the head as if in protest against the human limitations which place any barrier physical or mental between man and the utterance of truth to him these are all if the total effect is not eloquence of the highest order one knows not what to call it such are the tangible expressions of the personality which arises before the mind remembering phillips brooks this personality expresses itself however in another manner not quite so obvious yet intimately connected with an important phase of the preacher's conception of the truth what he believed with his mind about men's capacity for spiritual things he seemed to declare by his mere physical presence how often writes bishop clark i have heard him say i love to preach in talking about the teaching of religion mr brooks once said a man will dig his ditch better if he knows and cares for the great plan of giving the thirsty city water still he can dig his ditch for his dollar a day but a man cannot really preach at all unless he knows why he preaches unless he is in some degree eager to make men know the christ whom he knows this very love of preaching based upon a thorough belief in what he had to say and in the need of men to hear it shone out through him whenever he rose to speak and gave to his words a power of convincing which the words of a man less completely convinced in his own heart could not carry with them mr brooks we are told preferred never to speak without preparation and we may be perfectly sure that he never fell into what he counted the crowning disgrace of a man's ministry writing his sermons on saturday night but whether he read the sermon from his fluently written manuscript or spoke it without recourse to notes of any kind he added to the truth with which he dealt the winning and compelling power of his irresistible personality illustrating all his own definitions of good preaching and true preachers he stood in his pulpit before and above his generation as the very messenger of god to man End of chapter five